that's all we have. This is a completely free day except for services. We don't have any uh, anything planned this afternoon, no meal. You can uh, have the whole rest of the day for whatever is good for you on your agenda. Now, so far in this feast, I, I haven't meant, to, meant it to be a downer in any way, but we've been discussing so far the spirit in man and the problems that have occurred with the mind of man since Adam and Eve and on down. Uh, these are not problems we're not aware of because we have them and fight them every day. Then to make it worse, we went into uh, some time about Satan and the spirit of Satan and how it can permeate the airwaves and how he can influence mankind. And if you look at the overall experience of man, uh, you see good happening in the world. You see people doing kind and nice things. But overall, the direction of mankind has always been downward uh, with his own mind and spirit and that of the destroyer and the deceiver uh, working on him all the time. So it, it got so bad he wiped them out at the flood. It got so bad he scattered them at Babel. And now we are in a position where we're fast, fast approaching those same levels of degeneration that Satan is able to to put on man. I promise you things would be better today. So uh, having examined those, let's look at some more positive things. And I want to start in uh, in John, the book of John. Because Christ had been working with the disciples at this point for three and a half years, had taught them a great deal. They had seen him preach. They had seen him heal the sick, uh, raise the dead. He had done some powerful and marvelous things there in front of the disciples and in front of the Roman Empire. And as a result, he was hated a great deal. And that was going to be passed along to those whom he would leave. So they were facing a pretty tough row ahead of them that they did not even yet comprehend what would be happening. So he gave them, after Judas went out and after the Passover, he gave them a talk. We read this every year at Passover, but we just read through... Uh, and the reason I think that that was somewhat traditional in worldwide years ago and why we've continued it here is that during that formal Passover service, I feel it's better just to read his words. It's not a time to expound and explain uh, and inter inject whatever human or the minister's views or thoughts might be, uh, because there's always a certain risk of pollution uh, or misstatement or whatever. So I like to just stick with exactly what Christ said. But today it's less formal than that, and certainly uh, in Ezra and other places, it indicates that they not only read the Scriptures, but they gave the sense thereof or expounded it. And that's what preaching is, really, is trying to expound or make 
clearer or make us more able to internalize what the Scriptures are saying and apply it to our lives. We can all read it, but sometimes we can be helped by expounding it. So let's look at John 14 through 17 a little bit here at the beginning, uh, because he told them not to be troubled, the beginning of verse chapter 14, uh, that they believed in God, and they were to believe in Him, and that He was going to prepare a place for them, and when He got it prepared, He would come back. If you go into Revelation 21, you'll see that when He comes back, He's going to bring it with Him. Well, after, after He goes back and forth a time or two, He's going to come to resurrect the saints. Then He is going to go back to His Father's throne with them and be married and have a honeymoon. And then He will come back bringing that place and with it the saints. And the place is going to be here on the earth. We will reign with Him, Revelation 5.10, a thousand years. Not going to be up in heaven, going to be right here where the Father and the Son will be ruling over the entire earth for a thousand years and then into eternity. So that's the place He's preparing and He says, I'm going to come again and receive you to Myself and then they would know which way to go. And... Let's go down to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now, these were fishermen and tax collectors, and they had never done anything outstanding whatsoever. Uh, you know, catch fish and sell them. Uh, that isn't, uh, isn't anything, it isn't any great work. <laughs> There's lots of people that can do that. A lot of people that do it. There are a lot of people that can collect taxes and do a pretty good job of it. But that's all they had ever done. And so he's telling them that they were going to do great things. Now, these things were written not just for them. I mean, if it had been only for them, he would have just said it, and he wouldn't have caused them to write it down, right? He wrote it down so that others would read it later, and that it would apply to them. And he even says in here somewhere, if my eye falls on it, that uh, it was also for those that would follow them, the ones that they taught. So this is written not just for then, but for now, upon whom the ends of the world have come, as Paul said. So do we believe that? Uh, these disciples did go on to do some pretty powerful things, didn't they? Uh, and yet, what happened to that work? This apparently was said probably in 31 A.D. By the turn of the century, uh, the Apostle John was almost 100 years old when he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And the church had basically died out by then. It was almost gone. Uh, there are places in the New Testament that predicted a falling away, and that occurred. So here God was starting something through Christ and the they who would become apostles, and he knew it would almost be gone 70 years later, give or take a year or two or three, but approximately 70 years 
it was out of sight after the Apostle John died. You don't read any more about it, really. Uh, you read the the Catholic Church getting bigger and bigger and stronger, but not people who were following God. Almost gone. Now, God did that on purpose. He only, you see, He's only working toward, and people don't understand this in the Protestant religious world, but He's only looking for 144,000. That's all He needs right now. Everybody else comes in a different resurrection. So when he returns, he will be there to resurrect the first fruits. And we've already seen many times there in Revelation 14, it says that the 144,000 are the first fruits. No more, no less. Now, he already had a few, not very many, throughout the history of mankind up until what we're reading here in John, uh, who had actually followed God. And they are, some of them listed here. It's not a totally comprehensive list. But he goes through Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Sarah, and a very few more. And then he said, I don't have time to talk about Samson and Barak and uh, Samuel and some of those uh, who did incredible things. He says they, through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, Stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel. Quenched the violence of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword, uh, numerous ones. Out of weakness were made strong. That's encouraging right there. (laughs) Out of our weakness we can be made strong. Waxed valiant in fight, David, some of those who went to war. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, Elijah and the the widow's son. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So they are included in the best or better resurrection, the first one. Others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds, and imprisonment. He says they were stoned. They were sawn asunder, like maybe Isaiah was. Were tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. We haven't had it bad yet, have we? (laughs) I mean, look at that list. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. The rest of the world was going its way, going Satan's way, and some went the other way, and the world was simply not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. What about Elijah? He had raised the widow's son, uh, with God's God doing it, of course. And then when Jezebel threatened him, he got scared, ran out, and wandered in the desert because <laughs> he's afraid of Jezebel. Uh, so it, it was up and down somewhat in their lives, was it not? Good times and bad times. And these all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise. If anybody should have, you'd think they would have. But they haven't yet. Why? 
God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or perfected or changed into spirit, uh, which will happen at the resurrection. So God is holding off on bringing all those that we just read about back to life until we're ready. So he had a certain number from the Old Testament. How many was it? A hundred? A few hundred maybe at most? It wasn't very many. Uh, you can name a lot of them by name, which he did, and then there were probably some others that weren't mentioned. I think it's notable that we look up to most of those as leaders of Israel at some time or another, but he also included Rahab, a harlot, to show that God, through his spirit, can take the spirit of man apart and apart from the spirit of Satan as well and bring them to faith and trust in God no matter who they are. So Rahab is listed as one of the faithful of the Old Testament. So her profession had nothing to do with it. It was what happened when she gave that up and protected God's spies and did a work for God. So she quit working for herself for a living in a disreputable way and straightened her life out, obviously, and came and lived with Israel from that point. So, I don't care how bad you think you've been, you weren't any worse than her. Nobody was. But God brought her out of it. Now, let's for a moment contrast what the spirit in man and the guidance, if you will, of Satan had led her to in life and how that got changed. By what? By God. By His influence. So, no matter how bad things are, there is a way to make them better. There's a way to overcome all that and fulfill our purpose here on life. I think that's why he included that particular example. He wouldn't have had to. She wasn't notable in Israel's history beyond one act to help support what God was doing. So he told these guys, you're going to do better, more things than I have. And through their minds, they're thinking about all these healings. They're thinking about him putting the Pharisees in their place, about resurrections. And we're going to do greater than this? That must have been a hard saying. Now, I'm going to tell you that God's people here in the end time are going to do the same thing in greater works than they did then. Now, they were having trouble digesting that, and so are you. But it's true. This end-time work has to be greater and more dramatic in every way than anything that has gone before. Now, when, when they make a movie, do they give you the most dramatic, crescendo, end-of-the-movie type thing at the beginning? 
No, they'll do something to get your attention, maybe. But they'll save the biggest guns for the end, when they pull it all together. That's just the way it works, and that's the way God is. Uh, he did more with the New Testament apostles than he had done with the Old Testament prophets, did he not, for the most part. At least more of it, and more people called, and more people uh, made first fruits than had been prior to that. And he wrote this for us. So we need to pay attention. We need to get as close to God as we can because he can do things. That's the reason I wanted to go through the futility of man and the influence of Satan before we contrast it to what God can do. Because it gets positive now. It gets good. You're going to do greater things than I did, he said. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So it's not for, it wasn't for theirs, nor will it be for anybody's at the end's personal glory. It'll be to glorify the Father in heaven and the Son who does the work. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And my name means by my authority. Uh, he says, according to my will in another place. Uh, it, it can't be something that's against God's will or he won't do it. Which is why it's so important for us to learn what his will is. And if you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, as soon as I'm dead, they'll be done away with, but give me a break. <laughs> Where do people come up with this stuff? from things that Paul wrote that are hard to be understood, as Peter said. But Paul wrote some pretty clear things, and Christ said some pretty clear things, and so did John and the others, about the law of God still being in effect. Now, verse 16 is critical. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that it may abide with you forever. Now, he had comforted them when things got rough, but he says, I'm leaving but I'm going to send another comforter. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees it not, neither knows it, but you know it, for it dwells with you and shall be in you. Now, he had the Spirit of God, and he had not sinned. He had done great works. And he says, you've dwelt with it, you've seen it, but it's going to be in you. It's going to become a part of your mind. In other words, the spirit in man gives us a certain level of intelligence, but our intelligence is utilized in a negative form for the most part, and that's the way man always goes. I mean, they can realize, as, as he said, even the Gentiles sometimes follow my laws, not knowing why, but they realize that their society is going to operate, they have to do certain things, like not kill each other, or take each other's wives, and so on. Even the Gentiles, apart from God, recognize certain things. So, most empires and things that have been done among men that was notable, at least, 
have started out with some high ideals, with some good principles, but then with human nature comes degeneracy and selfishness and greed. Uh, our nation started out with a constitution and some pretty good thoughts and ideas and goals and purposes, and now it has degenerated into its own destruction. So, mankind can sort of get it together for a little bit and try to make things good, but it doesn't last long because of our nature. So, he says, the, the spirit of truth is going to come to you. And later on, he told Peter, when you are converted, feed my sheep. Now, he was not at that point converted, and then when Christ did die, what did Peter say? I don't know him. <laughs> that guy? Nah, I never saw him before. What do you mean? Who, me? No. And then he got converted. And then he did some pretty notable things. And he stood up for the truth. See, the change in his life from the night Christ died was a totally different guy. How? Only through the Spirit of God. Had not the Spirit of God come to him in form of conversion, combined God's Spirit with the Spirit of Peter as a man, he could have never done the things that he did. And we'll see in a moment uh, when and how it happened. And from that point on, things were different. Now, he's telling us he's sending the spirit of truth. The world can't receive it. It is only those to whom God opens their minds and gives them the understanding and reveals the truth to them. Because the world is opposed and is enmity to God. We read that yesterday. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. And you'll know at that time that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And then he reiterates again that keeping the commandments is the key to showing that we love him. Uh, that's what produces godly love. Verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. So, they had fallible human memories. And he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, it will even help you remember the things that I've said. Well, it was later on that they wrote down the things that he had said, at least some of them. There was much more than what they wrote. But we have four different authors uh, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three of whom were eyewitnesses. Luke was not, but he talked to all the other eyewitnesses. And then, of course, Paul uh, was with Christ in the desert and was taught of him. Uh, and all the things that these men wrote down, apart from each other, agree. So it must be not just their fallible human memory, but him causing them to remember what had been written. 
I mean, what, had, what they had seen so that they could write it. Then he said, told them, I'm not going to talk with you much after this. I'm going to go away. Now, then he says, he's the true vine in chapter 15, and we're to bring forth fruit. And if we don't bring forth fruit, we'll get taken away. On the other hand, if we do bring forth fruit, he says he is going to prune us or purge us or trim us back so that we might produce more fruit. If you've seen the way vinters do their grapevines, during the summer the grapevines grow all over the arbors or they have stands of one type or another that hold them. And they just grow huge and produce grapes. And then for their trouble, that fall, they cut them back where there's just a, the main shoot sticking up, the main trunk, and with a, little, a few little shoots off of it, about so long, and it's really naked looking. There's hardly anything left. And you think, man, they killed it if you just look at them. But the thing is, if you don't do that, they don't produce the next year much. Because only new growth can produce fruit on a grapevine. Old growth does not. So a lot of people don't care their grapes, take care of them, and they just get bigger and bigger, and there's a few little grapes out on the ends, but the whole vine's not producing much. So he says he's the true vine, and we need to cling to him. and produce fruit, and then he will cut us back, trim us, uh, whatever he needs to do to us to bring forth more fruit. So some fruit's not enough. He wants more. That's why we have the parables of the talents and so on, so that we might use and continue to grow. We are not to reach a certain level where we understand so much truth and quit. He says that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God or of Christ. And people will say, well, Herbert Armstrong had the truth and you can't change anything. Huh? How am I going to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God if we quit there? You can't do that. You can't stop. A vine has to keep producing. It has to keep growing. And when it is trimmed back, then it grows more and produces more fruit. God wants abundant fruit from us. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. Those branches that are trimmed off don't produce any fruit the next year. They just dry up, get burned. I'm the vine. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, what is fruit? What does that mean? That we're to bear fruit. I'm not an apple tree. I don't, I don't have apples growing out my ears. What does this mean? It says without him you can do nothing. Now, he's, he's speaking in the context of bearing fruit. And he says, you can't bear any without me. Human mind, in and of itself, 
cannot produce anything of spiritual lasting value. It just can't do it. He says you can't. Let's go to Galatians 5. Now, what can the human mind produce on its own, apart from God? He says up here uh, in verse 14, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, that the law is fulfilled in that. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Now, this is people who have been converted or in the church. And he's telling them, don't go the way of your human mind the way you used to. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Spirit of God can keep us, help us, so that we don't fulfill the various lusts of the flesh. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. We just fulfill the lusts of the flesh, whatever they might be. Materiality, sex, uh, you name it, the things that people go for in this world. That's what's there. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. You, you, it's like oil and water. The things of the flesh don't mix with the things of the spirit. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, what had Christ told them? Of yourselves, you can do nothing. And you might have some high goals, but without the Spirit of God, you can't accomplish them. If you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. So then he, he names the things that our flesh will produce. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. You beginning to recognize America the beautiful here? Or the rest of the world as it is? Not very beautiful. Um, emulations, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envying, murder, drunkenness, uh, wild partying and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, if you're not connected to the vine, you can do nothing, and this is what you're going to produce. Now what about fruit? That's works, works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is something that is worthwhile. The works of the flesh aren't works worth saving, so he doesn't call it fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. But without the Spirit of God, you're not going to produce those. Apart from Christ, you can't. And he says it here in verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. 
If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So he says that the, the Spirit of God, combined with the human mind, can produce the above things. And those are all desirable, aren't they? I mean, you read the works of the flesh and, boy, that's not good. Uh, it's not stuff that you enjoy. I mean, people enjoy sinning, but they don't enjoy the results because they cause problems. All of those things cause all kinds of problems in human relationships. But the fruit of the Spirit doesn't cause problems in relationships, does it? How, how does peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness produce anything bad? No, those are all good things that we like to see and would like, like to enjoy. But he says the only way it's going to come is through the Holy Spirit. Now, our nation has called itself a Christian nation. But they don't know what a Christian is. They are a, were a religious nation, but they didn't have the Spirit of God, didn't understand it, and what has our nation produced? Well, we've created more wars in this past century than any other nation, by far. Caused more death and tumult. We've caused more adultery and fornication than any other nation on earth. How did we do that? We exported it in television shows around the world. I go to Kenya. I go to South Africa, New Zealand, Europe. What do I see? American sitcoms. We've exported sin around the world. Why does God say you look like Gentiles? There in Ezekiel 16. Because we are exporting the works of the flesh to the whole world. Israel was to be an example to the world. We call ourselves a Christian nation following Jesus, and we're exporting sin faster than anybody. Now, is that Christianity? Is that the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh that we're putting out there? This nation has some serious repenting to do. And God said, don't even pray for them because they're not going to. They're going to be punished. We are going to be punished as a nation. Because God did not open His Spirit to us as a nation. There was a chance at the beginning when a few of the Puritans came over and they had the Sabbath and the Holy Days and they outlawed Christmas and Easter and so on. But it got shouted down almost immediately. And the Masons and so on took over and formed Washington, D.C. and so on. And the government of men. Now the Constitution of the U.S. that followed does pretty well. But is it the government of God? Does the U.S. Constitution follow Scripture? And how did it set up? And its laws? No. It's the best that men could do under the circumstances, and it has now failed. The only thing that will work is God's way. And he says it will. Now, he hasn't opened it to very many. He says he's going to call only so many, and out of that he's going to choose 144,000 to set up his government on earth. So it's going to have the Father and the Son 
and the bride, and they will rule the whole earth for a thousand years in what? Peace. No war, no conflict, and if you do decide to sin, one of your teachers will say, uh-uh, don't do that, we don't do that here. <clears throat> so you will not be allowed to. There will be the government of God by God, and it will work, and peace will come. Now, that's the fruit of the Spirit. So, we find ourselves today also in another work at the end. Now, I, I still firmly believe that he worked through Herbert Armstrong. The numbers all line up as to when and how it happened, and the truths that he understood now, that was men trying to govern as God would govern, but they didn't fully understand how God governs, nor were they fully, totally converted, and they couldn't rule as God does, and it came apart. Interestingly, though, the early New Testament church lasted about 70 years. And from the time Herbert Armstrong was called in 1927, as the disciples were called, it lasted about 70 years. And then it was gone. 27 to 97 is 70 years. And you could say it died in 96 or 95 or 4 or whenever you want to say. It was certainly having uh, symptoms of cancer, diabetes, and heart attack in, from 86 on. And uh, some of the symptoms of those hardening of the arteries began in the late 60s and 70s. But it was pretty well dead by 97, 70 years later. You see, God only wanted to call a limited number in the Old Testament, a limited number in the early New Testament, a few who were hard to trace. He says it wouldn't die out, went through the Middle Ages. But the main part of needing to finish the work was here at the end. So Herbert Armstrong was used to call many, out of which few are being chosen, as the Scripture says. Now there's one more work to be done because an extension is required. You had to have a certain number of people who, were, who came through faithful in order to finish the work of God in a dramatic fashion. Herbert Armstrong was not particularly dramatic. On TV, on radio, visited a few presidents and kings and so on, but it, but it was not a dramatic, miracle-working, uh, incredible thing that the world had to pay attention to. But quite a few were called, and out of that, so many chosen, and then it died. The Sardis, it died. Now what? He's saying, those who respond to my Spirit, who follow the Holy Spirit and the truth, are going to be used to finish God's plan for this age here on the earth. And it's going to be different. We find in Haggai, and we've been through all these scriptures, but we find that it is going to be much greater than that which came before and a few of you old gray-headed bald people are going to still be alive to see it when it was at its best and compare it to the end. 
and how much greater that will be. So it's going to be a much more dramatic thing as it finishes up than it was. If it is to do greater works than Christ did while he was here, and the apostles, then it's going to be pretty dramatic. It's going to combine everything Moses and Aaron did in in Egypt, all the plagues. It's going to involve a great uh, deliverance. Because he says that we'll build the temple in Jerusalem and build Jerusalem back. And then the beast and the false prophet are going to come take it over. And you have to flee for your lives. And there will be a huge army that comes after you. Remember Pharaoh and the chariots? A flood, an army, will come after. But you'll escape to Zion. And it will be so dangerous... More dangerous than it was in Egypt. Because there, he said, have your shoes on, have your staff in your hand, uh, your kneading board on your back, be ready to go, because Pharaoh is going to be angry. But it didn't say, don't go back in your house after anything. Leave Fido there. You can holler as you run, but don't go back after Fido. And we're going to know that it's very close, and you better have the baby on your shoulder. You can't go back in the house. It's going to be that tight. You know what? God will have to have given us deer legs. I I see people here, including one in my chair, that could not flee from where I believe Jerusalem is across Cedar Mountain and down into Zion without some help. We couldn't do it. I mean, we can barely even get up that little hill where the Jerusalem site is, some of us already. So how are we going to climb the mountains and get there and in haste? He's not going to give us a month, you know, to walk 30 feet a day. An army is coming to kill God's people. And Satan is going to be pushing it. That will be quite a dramatic flight and escape. But only by the power and the Spirit of God. Because we can't do it ourselves. He's letting us get this old. So that it's very clear, it's not by might or strength, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. The Holy Spirit is a very powerful thing because it represents the mind and power of God. And that's what it is. It isn't something apart from God. It's His mind, His power, that He can project. Now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he can project his thoughts through the airwaves to impact your mind. Satan doesn't have to come and sit beside you and whisper in your ear, he puts thoughts in your heads from afar. Now, God has that power even greater than Satan has it. He can broadcast. He can sit on his throne, however far it is away, and in an instant, hear your prayer. Faster than the speed of sound, faster than the speed of light. Instant. That's because his spirit pervades the universe. His mind encompasses it all. 
how does he count the hair on your head? I don't know, but he says he does. Gets easier and easier as we go older, I guess, but even when we're young, he counts it. So he is going to do another work. The Worldwide Church of God pretty well ended by 97, just like the early New Testament church did. Same pattern. But he only needs 144,000, that's all he's after. So now he has to bring together a 10% faithful remnant of what was and do his work with it. That's what he's going to do. It will have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit because that's what he tells Zerubbabel, which I just quoted. That's who he's speaking to. Not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit. None of these things will be possible. Now, Satan has a great deal of power to do lying signs and wonders, as he did in Egypt and as he will do here in the end. But God can do greater works. But the world will hate what God does. They'll love what the beast and false prophet do, and they'll hate what God does. That's stupid, isn't it? Yeah, but that's human nature. So, back into John. Herein is my Father glorified, chapter 15, verse 8, that you bear much fruit. So we need to be bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and all those things we just read in Galatians 5. That's the fruit he wants to see. And you, and so shall you be my disciples. He goes down, down, tells us to love each other in the next few verses. And then in 16, he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You would not be here in this chair today if God had not chosen you to be here and to open his truth to. Now that put us, that puts us in a pretty special category doesn't make us special because we are the weak in the base of the world. That's just the ones that he calls. He's told us that. Why? So that his power might be glorified. He takes those who are nothing and makes them into something. So we don't need to be discouraged at where we start out. We need to be encouraged at where he's taking us, what he's doing with us and will use us for. That's the encouraging part. So he's chosen us to bring forth fruit and that our fruit should remain, endure to the end, to have those fruits of his spirit that stay with us. They become part of our character. That that's the way we are. Now what did he tell the disciples in the very first sermon after he was baptized? Let's go back and review that just a moment, back in Matthew 3. Now, Christ had been living on the earth all this time uh, until he was baptized at about age 30. And uh, he had not sinned. Why? He had the help of God through the Holy Spirit with him from his birth, or even in the womb. So he had had God the Father's help all along, Obviously. 
And yet, he went out and got baptized. And John said, well, you need to baptize me, not me, you. But verse 15 of chapter 3 says, And Emmanuel answering said to him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. So, he set the example for us. He already had God's Spirit dwelling within his mind, but he says, we need to fulfill this because it is a part of righteousness that must be done, and he set the example that we should follow in his steps. So he was baptized for our sake. So then he allowed him to do it. <clears throat> and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. We don't see that, and it wasn't seen any time in the Acts of the Apostles or so on, but it was a special manifestation that God gave to show His Spirit in a visible way descending like a dove. A dove is a gentle, peaceful kind of bird. Uh, they're not a bird of prey. Uh, they eat fruits and nuts and seeds and, and uh, are very, very gentle birds. The, even their even their cry is a very gentle, soothing, uh, loving sound. I'd, I'd love to have doves around and listen to them cooing because that's the way they are. So it descended like a dove and a, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That apparently was audible to John and maybe any who were around. They heard the voice <clears throat> say, this is my beloved son. Now, when we're baptized and have the laying on of hands, we don't get it quite that way. But this was a dramatic thing with the very Son of God that he wanted as an enduring and lasting evidence that there was something that happened there. And that it would happen with us but not in as dramatic a fashion, but that when you're baptized and the Holy Spirit does come with the laying on of hands, it's an actual occurrence that His Spirit, His mind, comes and begets you of the Spirit so that His Spirit is then combined with the Spirit in man to give you something more than just your human intelligence that he gave us from birth. This is an additional thing that is fused together with your mind. You were of the world and of the earth, earthy. And we are still that in that sense as humans. But we have had the down payment of salvation and immortality combined with our mind so that it's actually fused together in there and you become a begotten son of God. When a child is begotten of two human parents, it is a fusion of the genes of those two individuals that produce a body and mind just like them. Now, it takes that baby a while from the time it's just mucus to develop and to be capable of being born and living. Just as when we are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, it is a conception. 
I mean, you can go through the act of what it requires to make a baby, but if for some reason the the seed from the mother and of the father don't combine, nothing happens. It's just they're just there, and nothing happens. But the time that they fuse together and create a new life, something has occurred, and then it grows until it can be born. So when the Holy Spirit conceives you of the Spirit, there is a fusion that occurs between the natural mind of man and the Spirit and nature of God. It's an actual conception, like the sperm and the, the seed from the mother coming together and dynamically producing something. It's a perfect analogy that God gives so that we can understand. It's not just that he sort of has the Holy Spirit come and hang around to advise you. There's an actual conception there. Fused together. Now that's why, once that happens, you cannot go back. Luke 9.62 When you put your hand to the plow, you can't go back. You have to move forward. You have to grow. It is your chance. You'll have no other. That's the chance of a baby once it's conceived in the mother's womb. It will either grow and be born as a human being, or it will abort and not be a human being. At least not a live, living one. And the same when we have the Spirit of God infused together. There's a conception, a literal conception that occurs, and now you must grow and produce fruit so that you can be changed and born into the kingdom of God. That's why he uses begotten during this incubation period here and born when we are changed when Christ returns. Seed of begettle. So when you, if you repent, you're baptized and have the hands laid on you, that is symbolic of a father and mother coming together and a conception occurring. And now you must grow. You must produce fruit. There's no turning back. You just got to do this thing. Got to see it through. So, Christ was then tempted and beat the devil. And he gave us his spirit so that we can also whip the devil. You can't do it on your own. But with his spirit, the eternal rebuke you you have power over demons. Then in Matthew 5, he began to teach them. What did he open his mouth and teach them, saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Does this sound a lot like that list in Galatians 5, of the fruits of the Spirit? Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. They will attain it. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. The pure in heart. They'll see God. 
the peacemakers. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. For they shall be called the children of God. Now, those aren't just some nice-sounding words in Galatians 5, but here he's indicating action. He doesn't just give you peace. You have to be a peacemaker. In other words, you utilize the Holy Spirit to learn peace and to achieve and make peace. That's what he's telling them here. These are things that you must do. These are attitudes that you must have. These are things that have to change. We've been proud, boastful, vain, selfish, greedy, envious. Those have been what we were. So he expects a transformation so that we're not that way anymore. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if people persecute you and you take it, uh, if it's false, then rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. They persecuted the prophets the same way. So, whatever happens, we have to respond according to God's attitude, His mind, His spirit. That's why it's so important that we be close to Him, because the more we are involved with His Spirit, the more we're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If we go without prayer, if we go without meditation and reviewing the words of God, then we drift away, and His Spirit is not as active in us. He wants a lively baby down here. He wants one that kicks and pushes and wants out. You know, a baby in its growth in the mother's womb gets to that point. And she feels him over here and then over there, and she gets head-butted and kicked and everything else because that baby wants more. Now, why did he make it that way? So that once we're baptized and receive his spirit and we begin to grow... And we see that things can get better in life. Our, our own minds are being transformed from lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy into these other things. And the result is positive. It's good. So we want more of that. So we don't want to be human anymore. I, I'm, I'm getting tired of it. The fight, the struggle, all the time, life on this earth is a struggle. And I want to be delivered from that and become spirit, and I don't even begin to comprehend what it will be like not to have to fight against lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and all those things. Because as long as we're still human, that human tendency and Satan there to influence us is always going to be a fight. What did Paul say? We fight against principalities and powers and the evil one. That's why in the sample prayer he says, deliver us from the evil one, is the way it should be translated. Because he's there trying to destroy us all the time. But the power of God is there stronger than he is. Let's go back then to John and finish this up for today. Because he gives us a lot of encouraging things here.
verse 19 of chapter 15, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. You're going a different direction, and they, they resent what you're doing. It's just an automatic thing. Your relatives would have cared less if you had changed from one Protestant church to another, perhaps, or your friends. Oh, you want to go to a different church? Fine. But you start learning the truth, and you get excited about them and tell them, Boy, I'm going to change and not even be a Protestant anymore. I'm going to go do this. Man, you've seen it. <laughs> Automatic. Just, ugh, in nearly every case. They just can't stand God. Verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, it will testify of me. And you will also bear witness, because you've seen me from the beginning. And that's exactly what they did. They wrote these words and testified what he was. And he says, don't be offended. Chapter 16, they'll kick you out of the churches. And if they kill you, they'll think they do God a service. That's coming up real soon. But these things, verse 4, have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And those particular men who were sitting there listening to this were persecuted, and they were killed, and those who killed them thought they were doing God a service. So it literally happened to those individuals specifically. But it's also a prophecy for the future, read Matthew 24. The end comes, the same thing, and not only that, but people who believe the truth and have been baptized, maybe converted, will start betraying one another and killing each other. Not just the world, but betraying each other because the world puts pressure on them and says it'll kill them if they don't give up a name of the names of those who are followers of the truth. Oh, you won't kill me if I'll rat out everybody? Oh, okay, that sounds good. You know? How much of the fruit of the Spirit will they be showing? Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I do leave, I'll send the Comforter to you. And when it does, it will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so on. And in verse 13, it will guide you into all truth and will show you things to come in the verse 13. So God's Spirit can open our mind to understand things that the world can't understand. We, we have a tremendous advantage. Um, end of chapter 16, verse 32, The hour comes is now come that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So, the disciples did scatter right after that, that very night. Uh, when he was taken, they ran for fear. And he was left alone. Well, not quite alone, because the Father was still with him. And then, as he hung there, the Father also deserted him. Why would the loving father desert his own son hanging there about to die? 
Because he was filthy. He was unclean. God will not hear sinners. Now, I'm not accusing Christ of sinning, but what was he doing? All our sins had been laid on his head. And he had to die for our sins. So, the Father deserted him because of all that sin that he carried. It wasn't his sin, it was ours, but it was still there, and death had to occur. For our sake, not for his, but for ours. But we always, scattered as we've become, God has always been there for us, and some of us have more or less departed, and now we're beginning to wake up and come back and understand that we'd better grow and be born into the kingdom of God because this is our chance. These things have I spoken to you, in verse 33, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, how did he overcome the world? The world was enticing him to sin. Satan was enticing him to sin. And he overcame all that temptation. He didn't allow it. So he said, I set you an example and it was the Holy Spirit of God that gave me the power to do this. And he says, I'm going to send you the same Spirit so that you have the same power I did. Now, he prayed frequently to his Father. He stayed as close to his Father as he could in order to keep from sitting. And that's what we're to do. He had a higher character than we do, but he was tempted in all points, like as we are. And he prayed for us, goes on down here. Prayed for them, and he prays for us. Uh, we, we rehearsed that a little bit yesterday about Peter, uh, Christ prayed for him. Then he tells us something that we read yesterday, verse 15, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Satan, as I said yesterday, is trying to destroy us above all people on earth. The rest he has in his pocket. We're the ones he's after. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So he said, sanctify them through your truth. That's why we have to grow in the grace and knowledge, the truth of God. We have to continue to learn. Herbert Armstrong was limited in what God gave him to understand because he simply was not going to be the one to do the work after the 70 years and the death of Worldwide. There had to be another work taken up after that. And there was certain knowledge that had to be given. He said there that the Elijah to come would restore all things. Uh, Herbert Armstrong, we thought, many thought, was the Elijah to come, but it says, when he died, the end would come. And he died, and the end didn't come. It's 32 years later, half a generation or half a lifetime later, it hasn't come. And he didn't restore all truth. 
And that has to be done before the end, lest God smite the earth with the curse, which is total annihilation. So he's depending on those of us who will turn to him with our whole hearts to finish his work in the fashion that he wants it finished. And that's laid out in the pages of the Bible that we've looked at and I don't have time to go to today. But the Spirit of God is the focus today uh, because it's the only thing that can keep us from the spirit of the evil one and our own human spirit and raise it to the level of God and what he wants done. Uh, he says that we'll be sanctified in the truth in verse 19. Neither pray I for these alone, the twelve that were there, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one. So we are to become like those apostles, to be one as they were one, part of the saved body. And he says then in the end of verse 23, You've loved them as you have loved me. Now he was well pleased in his son, which we just read. And, he's, and Christ is saying here that the Father loves us the same way he loved Jesus Christ. The same way. We're less deserving than him, but he loves us the same way. Now, we need to accept that, that there is a very loving God, and then we need to act respectfully and lovingly back to Him and follow His ways and there, thereby uh, put the seal of our approval on the love that He gives us by loving Him back in return. So he sent the Holy Spirit. I don't have time, but I'll quickly refer to Acts 2. Uh, when they became converted, the Holy Spirit came, and it was that begettle that occurred, and suddenly there were cloven tongues of fire. Now it came gently as a dove on Christ, and it came in cloven tongues of fire, and they had gift of languages, understand all languages, speak in all those languages. 3,000 converted one day, 5,000 the next, the shadow of the apostles passing over them, healing people. Peter, Paul actually raising the dead. God did it, of course, but through them. It, it wouldn't have been accomplished without them. God uses human instruments to do these things. So there were incredible miracles that they did. And he tells us that we too, that have learned from them, We'll do those incredible miracles. But it won't be our own human power that does it. The human mind, the spirit in man, is limited. But when combined with the Spirit of God, it can do anything. Of, my, of yourselves, you can do nothing. But with my power, you can do anything. Do you think it's an... Is there anybody that on, on his own, as a human being, that can turn water into blood, that can bring hail and flies and frogs and all that, not a chance. Now, the power of Satan can do that kind of lying signs and wonders and appear good. Now, what's the difference? All the way through what we've just been reading, he says, 
I will send you the Holy Spirit. It will lead you into the truth. <laughs> he gives the Spirit to them that obey. So the key for us to keep from being deceived, even if we're of the very elect, is to understand the truth of God as outlined in this book. And then we can see people doing miracles, but they're keeping the wrong days. They're keeping the wrong doctrines. Oh, that must be Satan's lying wonders. Now, is there anybody who's keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and the things of God that is doing miracles? Oh, the ones who are following the Bible are the ones God is using, and the others are the ones Satan is using. If you don't know the truth of this book, you will be easily deceived. That's why every week we go over something in this book. Because this is the word that will save us in the end when we're trying to figure out where the truth really is. Because signs and wonders can be very, very powerful and deceiving. Where is the Spirit of God working? Because both can do powerful things. Only where the truth is. Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So, Way beyond the human spirit, way beyond Satan's power, is the power of God. And Christ overcame Satan, and he overcame the world through the Spirit of God. That Spirit has been infused with your mind in a begettle, but now you don't just have the Spirit in man, you have the Spirit of God. Use it. <laughs>